This official podcast coverage of OzCert's 2012 conference is brought to you by Arbor Networks. Smart, available, secure. Datacom TSS. Discreet, niche, tailored. And Sophos, secured. Hello there and welcome to this official podcast from OzCert's 2012 conference. I'm Patrick Gray. The following is a complete recording of Mikko Hippinen's opening keynote to the OSSERT 2012 conference. Mikko, for those of you who don't know, is the Chief Research Officer for the Finnish antivirus firm F-Secure. Now, it takes him a few minutes to pick up steam, uh, but I definitely recommend sticking uh, with this talk. Uh, it starts out, you know, pretty good, but it winds up absolutely fascinating. The title of his presentation is The Enemy, and in it he examines three groups of attackers, uh, criminals, hacktivists, and nation-states. Now, it may sound like well-worn material, and it, it is, but uh, Miko's take is definitely worth listening to. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. For more coverage uh, from Risky.biz of the OSSERT conference, just head to risky.biz slash OSSERT. Enjoy! Thank you, Graham. <clears throat> it's great to be here. It's great to be in the 11th OSERT. That actually got me thinking, because it is the Olympics year, Summer Olympics in London. In fact, it's the 13th Summer Olympics. And of course, for Olympics, they like to write these numbers with the Roman numerals, which means it's XXX. But for some reason, they are not really highlighting the XXX Olympics as such much. <laughs> Funny that. Can't wait to get to the 13th OSERT, though. I'm sure you'll be highlighting it. But indeed, <clears throat> my name is Mikko Hyppänen. and I, I'm, I'm a Finn. Just got in from Helsinki yesterday. Finland, the home of ice hockey, home of Nokia, home of Angry Birds. It's true, Angry Birds is Finnish. I know many of the guys behind it. And home of F-Secure, where I've been since 1991. And it's been a pretty wild ride, because the things around us have changed so massively. I think that's the thing that has kept me in this industry and, and interested in this industry for so long. Because um, things change. Like, who of us would have believed a year ago that Macs would have such massive security problems they do today? Well, pretty much every single one of us, actually, would have believed that. But there are genuine surprises. Five years ago, if somebody would have told me that by 2012, um, we will be having a real concrete um, malware problems on our smartphones, and those problems would be on Linux-based devices. That would have been a real surprise. Yet, that's exactly what's happening today. Or. If somebody would have told me, I don't know, 10 years ago, that by 2012, we really will be seeing governments creating malware, creating Trojans and backdoors, launching cyber attacks, using high tech against their own people, against their own citizens, and not just in oppressive regimes, but in Western countries, and that we really will be seeing democracies creating malware to ac attack nuclear systems of other governments. I wouldn't have believed that. 
And yet, that's exactly what we're seeing today. I would have believed that's the material of Hollywood movies. So my role in F-Secure is, uh, well, I'm the chief research officer, which means the biggest task I have is really um, what we call threat analysis process. That basically means we try to guess where we're going. We try to guess what the enemy is doing next. And that's what I want to speak about today, about the enemy. Because this field where we work is unique in IT. You go and speak to any of your friends and family who work in other IT industries. Let's say they work for a company making some web apps or, or making games or making CRM systems. And you ask, like, who, who's your enemy? And their enemy is always the competitors. Like, if you write CRM systems, your enemy are the other companies writing CRM systems. If you're a game company writing Angry Birds, your enemy is, I guess, Zynga writing other games. But when you come to IT security, it's a bit different because we all share the same enemy. We are all fighting the same attackers. And yes, of course, most of us work for companies, and indeed, of course, we do compete. But I do really believe it's mostly the competition is much more in the sales and marketing departments than with techies. Because we techies, we all share the same enemy, and that's why we share. That's why there's so much sharing within the IT security industry, sharing of intelligence, information, sharing of samples, and so on. And that's one of the things that makes it such a great industry to work in. So I just wanted to show one photo from our labs. The closest labs we have to Australia are the labs we have in, in Malaysia. We have offices here in Sydney, but it's for only for local support and sales. That's from um, F-Secure Kuala Lumpur. That's the closest lab we have. And F-Secure works mostly behind the scenes. We most, mostly work with operators and ISPs. So in, the end result of that is that we have millions and millions of users running our security software on their computers, and they've never heard of F-Secure. And that's just fine. That's exactly where we are. We are working with the operators. We're providing security as a service. But I do believe that for any of us who works in this industry, it really is important to try to keep, try to keep the things as simple as possible. When you start um, speaking to people who are, um, for example, you speak to your customers, they really quickly get confused about the attackers because they are so different. So I try to simplify things by grouping the attackers into different groups. And these groups are based on the motives of the attackers. And if we split them like that, we end up with three basic groups. There are some additional fringe groups around these as well, but these are the main enemies. Criminals, the ones who do it to make money. That's a very simple group to understand, and it is the biggest group, right? Then we have hacktivists, movements like Anonymous, Lalsec, Antisec, and others who are not motivated by money. They're motivated by something else, typically motivated by protest or by political motive or something like that. And then we have the last group, which are governments. And this includes government espionage, cyber sabotage, um, backdoors used for, by governments, and possibly, yes, eventually, we might see real cyber war. We haven't seen it yet. We, we might. So let me give you examples, some, of, some case studies or some recent stuff on all of these cases. And like I said, criminals are the easiest one to understand. They're motivated by money. I mean, if you can become rich 
by writing viruses or distributing Trojans or running botnets or sending spam, well, of course, somebody's going to do it. And on the net, no geography, no distances, no borders, which means these criminals can reach the victims anywhere in the world. It's, it's a pretty remarkable problem, and it's especially tough to solve with the traditional methods we've used to solve crimes. Cops, of course, are trying to fight these problems by catching the bad guys and putting them away, but it is exceedingly difficult because we almost never see a case where both the victim and the attacker and everything in between would be in one single country, under one single jurisdiction. That almost never happens. And the systems we've built to fight international crime have been built to fight completely different kinds of international crime. Systems like Interpol were built to fight drug trade and smuggling and money laundering. They are not very well equipped to handle what we have to handle here. So money is the motive. And the mechanisms that are used to make money by online criminals range from pretty much anything you can imagine. Almost any mechanism you could imagine that somebody could use to make money online with online crime, it's likely somebody's already doing it somewhere. This is iFrameBiz, a website which used to be run from St. Petersburg. It was shut down late last year. And it's a good example of the kind of infrastructure and, and uh, marketplace these guys are running. These guys are buying infected computers, or they're buying botnets. They've built their own systems on how to monetize infected computers, but they don't want to infect them themselves. It's much easier for them to just buy them. So their partners are virus writers and botnet masters who are capable of infecting computers, but don't really know or don't want to bother themselves on how to monetize those. They will simply sell infected computers to these guys, and they will pay cash for infected machines. Of course, not for the physical machines, but for access to infected machines. And the amount of money they will pay you depends on where in the world the infected computers are. Um, the last rate I saw was around 30 cents for an infected machine in North America. And it goes down to 2 cents for an infected machine in China. But I also picked up this particular site as an example because of the, because of the look and feel. Now, you can sort of see the lifestyle image they're imposing on, on virus writers, like, come, join us, write viruses, make money, become rich, buy a BMW, impress girls, right? That's the image, that's the lifestyle image they're imposing. But is that really the way it is? Is it? Well, here's a photo of Alfred Gonzalez, known online as Segwick, relaxing while he's hacking away, stealing credit cards, and this photo is taken at the penthouse suite of, I believe, the Peninsula Hotel in New York. Has any of you been to Peninsula Hotel New York? Anybody? I don't see many hands. I actually don't see any. And sort of I can guess why, because here's a photo of Peninsula New York. It's not the cheapest place around. And the penthouse suite is the top floor of the tower. So how could this guy, he was 23 when the photo was taken, how can he f afford to live like this? Well, of course, it's easy if you're not paying your hotel bills with your own credit cards, but with somebody else's credit cards, right? Fairly simple. And credit card theft continues to be one of the fueling things behind um, the largest attacks we see. 
And most, most of these are collected with keyloggers, which means because they're collected from the keyboards of the infected users as they type them themselves while doing online shopping, they also get the user's name, their address, the security code, the expiration dates, which they shouldn't be able to gain access to as simply if they just hack an online store. Online stores are not supposed to save, for example, the CVC codes, but you will collect them all if you do it with keylogging. And it's quite easy to find many of these guys online. In fact, you can find quite many of them from just Googling around. Um, you'll find them from YouTube, like this guy right here. Or if you can't find them from public websites, then you'll find them from the deep web, from the .tor sites, Onion Networks, IP2 web, Freenet, and on and on. But this one was funny. Um, this guy's called Kwabo. He's running his YouTube channel where he advertises his services. And his service is a denial of uh, service service. So he attacks websites and charges you for attacking sites, taking them down. Now let's watch an ad he posted to, her, uh, to his site. Hello hackers, I am promoting Guapo's professional DDO service. We are here to provide you a cheap professional DDO service. We have been running this service on hack forums for months and serving a few huge companies outside of hack forums. We DDoS huge company websites to small personal websites to private game servers. Our prices are based on how huge and protected the website or server is. We are open for short to long-term jobs as we are capable of handling the job for days, weeks, and months. So they will be able to take down websites all the way from enterprise servers for months with a cheap daily or hourly rate. In fact, the same guy also posted a couple of other videos. Here's another one found from the same YouTube channel, which is, by the way, still up today. That's probably Mr. Guvapo himself counting his money. Those are $100 bills. And of course, that looks like a lot of money, but we have to remember that value of the US dollar has been going down, so it actually isn't that much. <laughs> so let me tell you a story about Denmark. Denmark, one of the Nordic countries, part of Scandinavia, we Finns, we love the Danes. Um, we hate the Swedes, but we love the Danes. It's mostly a hockey thing. Denmark was targeted in an attack in November. And this is a good example on how the attackers are trying to figure ways around the defenses we're building. One defense which many companies, especially online stores and, for example, online banks are using is profiling. Like online banks, for example, they know they're getting hit left and right with banking Trojans. Their own customers get infected by Trojans. Those Trojans modify banking transactions as the users are doing them themselves. So what can they do? Well, they can try to educate the users, which will not work. They can try to push patching on the end user computers so they don't get infected, which won't work. Or they can try to push antivirus there, or different solutions. But one solution which works fairly nicely is profiling. So just profiling what the normal user looks like and what abnormal user looks like. For example, if your user logs into an online bank and half a second later he pays a bill, that's not a human being. A human being will not be able to type in a form with account numbers and money figures in half a second, but a program can. So if that happens, it's a banking Trojan. Very simple, very easy to do. Profiling is nice because the user doesn't even see it. He doesn't even know he's being protected by stuff like this. What online stores are doing to profile is, well, they're looking at IP, geo IP addresses, like where are our customers coming from, 
uh, who are they, what are they paying with, where are they shipping the goods, and you can fairly easily profile what the normal user looks like and then tell abnormal users from there. And in this particular attack, a bunch of attackers who were from Russia tried going around profiling of online stores to gain access to stolen merchandise. And it all starts from monster.dk. Monster.dk is a recruitment website, monster.com in Denmark. So these Russian guys started posting recruitment ads for Danish people. And the jobs were work from home, get an extra income in addition of your daily job, uh, get paid to do um, clerk jobs. And people signed up. The job was fairly simple. You would never actually meet your bosses. You would communicate them with email, but they looked like a real company. They had four different fake companies, including this one, DRA Sending, which looked like a real company with a real website and a real history, but it didn't really exist. And the job that these people who signed up were doing was that they would start receiving letters in the mail with long shipping lists of numbers and, and, and uh, names and addresses, and they would cross-reference those shipping lists, double-check the numbers, stamp the papers, sign them, and ship them away. And they would get paid. They actually got money for doing this. And there was nothing really too weird about this, but this was all a scam. Because after they were doing it for a couple of weeks, and they got paid for doing it for a couple of weeks, then they were contacted by their bosses, congratulating them on the great job they've been doing, and now they would actually be promoted to a higher position with a bigger pay. And now they would not just be handling paperwork, but they would actually start receiving packages. They would do the same thing. They would receive a package, they would double-check the, the data, the addresses, the numbers, and stamp them, and sign them, and reship the packages. And of course, what these people ended up doing was that they became packet mules, reshipping stolen merchandise to hide the tracks of where they were really going to. But the Russians were pretty clever about it because they first hired these people to do something legit and then promoted them to do something illegal. One of the persons who ended up doing this was her. Her name is Lena, lives in Copenhagen. She worked for the Russian criminals for several months without ever realizing that she was working for Russian criminals. Then step number two. The Russians started attacking several different Danish websites in Denmark, installing this on those websites. And that's Black Hole, Black Hole Exploit Kit. Or actually, that's the administrator user interface for Black Hole. The affected websites look and function perfectly normally. But every single user who visits a website which has Black Hole waiting runs a risk of getting infected. And Black Hole is written and sold by another Russian group, um, and it's fairly automated. You install Black Hole to a hacked website, and every single visitor who comes to the website is run against a series of uh, scripts querying the system, like which operating system? Is it fully up to date? Which browsers? Are they fully up to date? Which plugins? Are they fully up to date? Which add-ons? Are you fully up to date? And if there's any component on your system which isn't up to date, it will make a tailor-made exploit and throw it against your computer. And these kits have a very high success rate of infecting users. So what kind of websites were being targeted? Mostly news sites, Danish local news sites, almost all of which, uh, all the visitors to such sites would be local Danish people, right? Like, what do you do in the morning when you get to your computer? I check the news. I go to a local news site to see what's happening. I've been doing it for years and years. The last thing on my mind would be that I would get infected by visiting that site because I know the site, I trust the site, right? And that's exactly the trust these guys were misusing. 
If we look at some of the statistics in this particular attack, we can see that out of uh, 217,000 Internet Explorer visitors, 13,000 got infected. That's a rate of 15%. Out of 93,000 Firefox users, 5,400 got infected. But surprisingly, or maybe not, but interestingly, out of Chrome users, only 16 out of 112,000 got infected. And that's one of the reasons why Chrome is rising. Chrome has already bypassed Firefox globally as the number two browser, and it will be bypassing IE during this summer globally to become the most common browser in the world. IE has been number one for 14 years. It will be bypassed this summer. And I guess that's good news. It, it, I mean, clearly, in practice, there's more security in Chrome. Of course, privacy is another issue. So we will be all selling our souls to Google in exchange of a little bit more security, I guess. Another interesting detail out of these is that people mostly got burned because they had old Java on their systems. 83% were burned because of Java. Then, because of a PDF browser plugin or Adobe Reader plugin, um, then Flash, QuickTime, and some others, but mostly Java. So, get rid of Java. Easy answer. Drop the plugin. You don't need it. So, this was step number two. Now they had people working for them physically inside Denmark. Now they had infected computers physically inside Denmark. And then they dropped two different components onto these infected computers a Trojan called Carburb and a proxy. And the Carburb Trojan had a keylogger, so they started collecting Danish credit card numbers, Danish Amex numbers, Visa numbers, MasterCard numbers. And now they were ready to start shopping. So they started accessing Danish online stores. Danish stores run in Danish language in Denmark. And we, when we go back to what I just said about profiling, a Danish online store can easily profile what a normal user looks like. He's coming from Denmark, has a Danish IP address, pays with a Danish credit card, ships to a Danish address. Right? If they suddenly get a customer to a Danish language website visiting from Brazil with a Brazilian IP address, using a credit card from Spain, and shipping the goods to South Korea, well, that's abnormal, right? That would be stopped. So the Russians were accessing these sites through the proxies on the infected computers in Denmark. So they had a Danish IP address. They purchased stuff like iPhones, laptops, iPads, uh, Android phones, stuff like that. And they paid with the stolen Danish credit card numbers. And then they shipped the goods to the packet mills in Denmark who had a Danish address bypassing the profiling. And now it all makes sense. Now we see why they were targeting one country to bypass profiling. So this case was investigated in Denmark with the, uh, several of the affected online stores. The different packet mills were located and interviewed. And what you see here is Lena's about to ship one of the packets. In this case, it's an HTC Android phone she just received with instructions to reship it to an address in Poland. Except before it was shipped, this GPS transponder was put inside the box, which means now we can follow where this phone is going to. And that should be interesting. Now we should be able to see where exactly these merchandise are shipped to. So it was, packet was closed, put into the mail, or actually shipped to it DHL. When it started its travels from here in Copenhagen, in Europe, slowed it into a DHL truck, driven across Denmark to Germany, to Netherlands, to Rotterdam, where DHL has a large sorting station. It was resorted, loaded to another truck, driven across Germany, 
across Poland to the address which was somewhere here in eastern Poland. No surprises there. You ship a packet to an address, of course it's going to end up to that address. But what exactly was in that address? Well, this house, the white house with the red roof, was in the address. And inside that house was a lady around, maybe in her 80s, um, receiving these packages. And when she was interviewed about this case, well, she explained that, well, she'd been doing it for a while. She just receives these packets and they are picked up. In fact, she was recommended by her neighbor, who had been doing the same job for quite a while. In fact, in her premises when visited were not just packets from Denmark, but packets from several other European countries. So the attackers were doing the very same attacks at the same time in other countries as well, but limiting those attacks inside those countries to bypass profiling of the online stores of those countries. So this was actually much larger than what it looked like. It had nothing to do with Denmark. It was much larger. When queried about who picks up the packages, well, it turned out that twice a week, this car comes around, Volkswagen Transporter, drives through the village and stops at several of the houses, all of which have been doing this for quite a while, picks up the packages. So the driver was interviewed. Here's the driver. He was asked, like, does he know what's in the packages? No, he doesn't. So where are you taking the packages? Well, I just take them across the border. He takes them across the border from eastern Poland to Ukraine, right here. And by watching the GPS transponder, we could tell that he was sitting in a warehouse just across the border in Ukraine for two weeks. Then he started moving again, was moved to the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, right here was sitting at the eastern side of Kiev in another warehouse for a month. Then it started moving again and started moving up north. Crossed the border again, going to Russia, ending up at a market square in Moscow. And that's where the trucks end. That's where the phone was sold. Somebody bought it and disconnected the transponder, and that's the end of the story. So what's the lesson here? Well, of course, the lesson is that if you need a cheap iPhone, you can go to Moscow. <laughs> I'm sure the prices are excellent. But it's a pretty complicated case. It's pretty complex. Do you think this is teenage kids doing it for fun? I don't think so. Much more complicated than that. Much more organized than that. In fact, this story does have a happy ending. Because we had an idea about who's behind this, or we had an idea who's behind a car burp. Um, it's a guy called Krui OKD, Russian guy. And pretty much exactly a month ago, uh, Russian police did a raid in downtown Moscow. We have a video of the raid right here. You can actually see, it's a bit fuzzy in the beginning, but you can see a guy on the floor in his underwear. And that's Igor. We believe him to be Krui OKD, right over there. He's woken up in the middle of the night and he's a bit confused. And of course, as they would always do, he denies any knowledge of the attacks. The Russian police uh, estimates that these guys made several million dollars with this scam, which they had been running for quite a while. And here's Igor looking at the evidence. No, you got the wrong guy. It wasn't me. I have nothing to do with this. Sorry. Wrong guy. Not, not me. Another thing we've been following with great interest are different 
uh, are the evolution in ransom trojans. So these are trojans which take a direct attitude in stealing money from the users. You get infected, these trojans will either lock up your PC and ask for money to open it up, or they will encrypt your files and won't let you access your files unless you pay up. And some of these are very direct. Um, here's an example. You boot up your infected Windows computer, it will boot up and your wallpaper has been changed. And the wallpaper says very directly that uh, your files have been encrypted with RSA 1024 and please read this how to decrypt text file. And if you open the how to decrypt text file, it explains in detail that you have to pay $125 via uCash by contacting this email address and sending this unique key, which is unique for your computer. And then once you pay them, they will generate a decryption program based on this unique key, and it actually works. We've, we have had cases where people have paid up and they actually have received their files back. And there really isn't any other way, because these guys didn't screw up. The encryption algorithm is really RSA. They do use long keys. They haven't made any mistakes we could spot. So the only way to get your files back is backups or by paying up. So for example, we haven't shut down the email address, which we usually would do in cases like this. We, we've kept it live, because they are really guys we have to pay the criminals to get their files back, which is a really sad case. But these are very obvious. I mean, the Trojan tells you, I'm a Trojan. I've encrypted your files. Pay me. But we've seen much more subtle versions of this. So for example, you boot up your infected Windows computer, and you get a prompt from Microsoft telling that your Windows license has expired and Windows won't start. If you want to continue using Windows, you have to activate it. And to activate it, you have to call Microsoft at one of these numbers, 00261008810452, and so on. And we actually called these numbers. And there's a robot answering, um, asking you a series of questions and putting you hold over and over, it puts you on hold, trying to make the call as long as possible because these are prebate or premium rate numbers. You pay money per the minute. And that's how they earn their ransom out of these cases. And then we have ransom trojans where you boot up your infected Windows computer and it tells that you, there's illegal content on your system, copyrighted content like movies and MP3s and uh, RIAA and NPAA and the Copyright Alliance will sue you unless you want to settle the case. Settle the case in pre-trial order right here, which you can do with a credit card nicely enough. So exactly the same thing, except it's trying to fool the user into believing that he actually is the guilty one here when he actually isn't. And this year, we've seen over and over these cases where you boot up your computer and you get prompted by the police. United States Department of Justice has found that your computer contains porn, child porn, zoophilia and child abuse, and emails with terrorist motives have been sent from your IP address. You, if you want to unlock your computer, you're obliged to pay a fine of $100. Please contact superusapolice.gov. And if you take the very same infected computer outside of the United States, for example, you bring it to Germany and you boot it up with a German IP address, the display changes. Now it's Bundespolizei, Achtung, Achtung, and you have to pay 100 euros. In fact, they do this with localized versions at this very moment in 13 different countries. In Luxembourg, in Belgium, in the Netherlands, in Sweden, in Finland. And for example, Finnish is perfect. These are not Google translations. It really is Finnish, done by a Finn. And there's only five million Finns, so they really are targeting fairly, I mean, fairly carefully different locations. 
But one thing is for sure, if you want to make absolutely sure that global law enforcement certainly comes after you, this is the way to do it, right? There is a very active police investigation into this right now, not quite unsurprisingly. So indeed, last time I was speaking here, I spoke about mobile. And we've seen the problems now start for real. Um, obviously still, there's a massive difference in the likelihood of getting infected or getting hit by an attack on your computer compared to getting hit by your mobile, but it does exist. This is something which is happening for real. In fact, we yesterday released our latest mobile threat report, which we put out four times a year, which is uh, available at fsecu.com slash weblog, which is our blog. You can go there and download. It's a 40-page PDF with lots of pretty graphics and statistics about the latest state of mobile malware. But one thing which is, I think, the big picture, which is important to understand about mobile malware is the split between different ecosystems. So we have computers and we have smartphones. Smartphones, the most likely way of getting infected is that you go and download Angry Birds, but you don't really know which one is the right one. That's Angry Birds for Android. That's Angry Birds for Android, both available from uh, Google Play or Android Market. They look the same, but one of them is Trojanized. How do you know which one is the right one? That's the key problem. And Android is where most of this is happening. If we compare the operating system split on computers and on smartphones, we actually have the same three large players on both sides. We have Microsoft, we have Apple, and we have Linux. Of course, on our phones, when we speak about Linux phones, we don't call them Linux phones. We call them Android phones. But it's a Linux system, right? Linux kernel. So it's the same split. And when we look at where the problems are on our computers, well, we all know that almost all of the problems are on Windows systems. Apple is now starting to grow, but it's still clearly a Windows problem. So it would be easy to think that the problem would look exactly the same on phones, and it doesn't. It looks exactly the opposite. All the problems on phones are on Linux systems, on Android systems, and there's nothing on Windows Phone 7 or on iOS iPhone is going to be five years old in June, next month. Five years, zero malware. We really have to give credit to Apple for a job well done. Sure, there's a couple of cases for jailbroken devices, but I don't count those because if you break your own security model on your phone, I mean, you, you don't have security after that. For non-jailbroken Apple devices, no malware, no Trojans, some proof of concept, but no real malware in the wild at all. Remarkable. I guess we are capable of learning something, because that's a pretty nice achievement. So what about then these new kind of attackers? Two years ago, Anonymous, well, it existed, but it was really nowhere to be seen. Today, it is one of the main three sources of attacks that we see. Anonymous, Lulzik, and all these others. Groups like these are very visible, but many of the attacks they do are fairly simple. Fairly simple denial of service attacks or something like that. Then, of course, every now and then, there are more skilled individuals within these groups. But one of the main controversies here, really, is that these guys are very vocal about restricting our rights. These, are, these guys are the first guys who would be on the, or have been on the streets opposing PIPA or SOPA or ACTA or what have you. But if you really think about it, the very activities they are doing are the very same activities that's increasing the need or, or, or the perceived need by powers to be to pass laws like this. 
So it really is a, a, a big conflict here. And I don't really see how we're going to get out of this. The, the way I've been comforting myself about um, movements like Anonymous who, who, who believe that denial of service should be exactly the same thing as, as uh, a sit-in. Um, according to current laws in almost any country, it isn't. But maybe one day it will be, because these guys, they will grow up. And we, we're the dinosaurs. We're going to grow old and we're going to die out. We're going to become extinct. They're going to grow up and take the lead, and they will pass their own laws eventually. So maybe they will one day change the law. Maybe denial of service will become legal. Maybe it will be compared to cities. Maybe. We'll see. And that brings us to governmental attacks. And the range of attacks is pretty large, starting from spying all the way to cyber sabotage. And spying is easy to see. I mean, spying is collecting information. Where is the information today? Well, it's on computers. It's on computer networks. If you want to reach the information, computer attacks is the perfect way to do it. We started seeing backdoors, which we believe to be launched by governments in 2005 for espionage purposes. But espionage is not cyber war. Espionage happens always in times of peace, in times of war, in times of crisis, in times of um, conflict. So it really isn't, um, shouldn't be labeled as cyber war, which it sometimes is. And governments are using Trojans for investigative purposes as well. German government was caught six months ago for using the R2-D2 Trojan, or Zapftis Trojan, or Staats Trojan, or Bundes Trojan. And this was a Trojan used by the German government to investigate their own people who were under investigation. In this case, it was actually not the criminal police, it was, it was the customs department of the German government which had actually infected the laptop of an, uh, of an individual they were investigating for importing goods without paying taxes. So they couldn't get the evidence they were looking for by tapping his phone or by tapping his internet connection because he was using Skype and Gmail, which are encrypted, so ISP wouldn't be able to see the traffic. So they stopped him at the customs at the Munich International Airport, and while investigating or interrogating him, they infected his laptop, putting a Trojan in there. And that's pretty remarkable, isn't it? A government while investigating someone, we don't actually, I don't even know if the guy was guilty, but he was infected by his own government so they could have a look on what he's doing with his computer. So the question is, what about us security people? Should we help the government in cases like this? Or should we not help the government? So we antivirus people, should we detect the Bundestrojan? Or should we actively not detect the Bundestrojan? And I don't even have to think about that. We should and we are detecting the Bundestrojan. No question about it. It's a Trojan. It's not in the interest of the user to run this. If somebody uses our antivirus, he has full expectation that we should block this. And we will. And that's, of course, a uh, delicate subject. Because at the very same time, we are working with the government. We're working with the police to hunt down online criminals. But at the same time, we can't help them with this. So if governments want to use Trojans, I can see why, why they want to use Trojans for things like this. Go ahead. Use them. Don't tell us about it. We will try to detect them. If you can avoid us detecting them, fine. But don't expect co cooperation on this. That's not the way it works. 
In a very similar fashion, a little bit more totalitarian state than Germany, Iran, was behind the hack of DigiNotar, CA, Certificate Authority in the Netherlands. One of the very few companies which has ever gone bankrupt because they got hacked. DigiNotar went bankrupt because they got hacked. And in this particular case, Iranians wanted to, wanted to watch what dissidents and revolutionary people inside Iran were doing online. But they couldn't do it because they were using foreign services like Gmail. And they couldn't tap traffic to Gmail because Gmail is under SSL. And SSL has the certificates. And if you just make a local fake copy of Gmail inside Iran and write, redirect traffic there, you get prompted about a broken certificate. So they hacked a Dutch CA and created 27 rogue certificates, including a certificate for gmail.com, hotmail.com, live.com, skype.com, facebook.com, and so on. And then they made local copies of those inside Iran. And now they could watch what the people they were interested in were doing online. Remarkable attack. It's also possible people actually died because of this attack. And then we have the actual espionage cases, or targeted attacks, or APTs, most of which look like this. You get an email from someone you know and trust. It looks like a real email, speaks about real things, has a PDF file attached, or a document file, or an Excel file attached, and the document file looks real. But it contains an exploit, and it drops a backdoor. And no one else in the world got it. And you were targeted from the very beginning. We keep seeing these. We've seen these since 2005. And if you look at the different um, document files we, we see in these, in many cases, it's actually fairly easy to see who, who the target was, even though we, we never officially knew who the target was. This is a screenshot from our internal systems where we execute all the PDF and doc and XLS and PPT files we receive by throwing them into virtual machines and running them, which means we actually get a screenshot of what the document looks like, and then at the same time we record that this actually exploited the system, so it has a Trojan. And just by looking at the screenshots, we can easily tell, for example, who do you think was the target with this PDF file, which has an exploit and drops a backdoor? Most likely somebody working for United Nations. Who do you think the target was here? Most likely somebody working for US Air Force. Here it's UNICEF. Here it's APEC. And I picked up this from like three, four years ago in, in, in uh, particular, because it starts with Dear Honorable Kevin Rudd. We don't really know who the target was, but of course we can guess about it. That, that's a Word document which contains a Word exploit and drops a backdoor. So who's behind this? Well, the Chinese are always pinpointed as the, as the culprit. And of course, they keep saying that, no, it's not us, it's someone else. But Joe Stewart from Dell SecureWorks did some interesting study into this last year when he investigated a case which had nine different servers around the world where all this stolen information was sent. And none of these servers was in China. But every single one of these servers was running a proxy. And Joe figured out a way to sort of trick the proxy into telling where it's forwarding the traffic. And the server from uh, Scandinavia was forwarding the traffic to an address in China. The server from Japan was sending the, address to, uh, the traffic to another address in China, and from Washington to a third address. In fact, they, all of them were sending the traffic to one address in China or another. And of course, that doesn't really prove we should pay no attention to that. That's just coincidence, just like we should pay no attention to the dancing kid on the screen. Like, pay no attention to that. This is just a coincidence, and it actually doesn't prove anything at all. Right? 
But how active are the governments right now in the building future cyber arms and, and getting ready for the next attacks? I was thinking about that, and then I realized that most of this work is actually not done by governments. It's done by defense contractors, right? So who are the biggest defense contractors on the planet? Well, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Booz Allen Hamilton, SAIC. Where do they get their expertise? Well, they hire it. So I went to their recruitment websites. This is SAIC, the fourth largest defense contractor in the United States. And I searched for jobs which required the highest security clearance, top secret, top secret SCI, and where the job description contained the word exploit. SAIC had last Tuesday 137 such jobs open. This is one company. One company has 137 open positions for people with top secret clearance to write exploits. What about other companies? This is Booz Allen Hamilton. They had 44 jobs like that. This is uh, Northrop Grumman. They have 80 jobs like that open right now, all requiring top secret clearance, all about exploits. Offensive attacks, um, recruitment, recruiting people for offensive cyberspace operations. That's for Northrop Grumman. And here in detail for one job, let's look at the skills they're looking for. You're hired to do exploit development for Windows, for Linux, and for phones. So the cyber arms race has started. I guess it started with Stuxnet. It's only going to get busier. We are in the middle of all technically capable nations stockpiling on cyber arms building them for their own arsenals. Cyber arms don't last very long. They go bad or rot away because exploits get patched and so on. So they have to keep a current stockpile. So it's hard to tell where we're going in the future with this, but the revolution has already started. And we all are smack in the middle of it. Thank you very much. Thank you.